Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, November 30th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We are going to start off this week talking about the burgeoning scandal or actually group of scandals engulfing Capitol Hill right now. That's sexual harassment, sexual misconduct in the Capitol. Um, We're going to talk about some of the members who have been accused and what the response has been across the political spectrum. It's been a big week for that, especially with uh, the dean of the House, Congressman John Conyers of Michigan, getting engulfed in this and uh, ultimately uh, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi calling today for his resignation from Michigan's 13th district. We're also going to talk a little bit about President Trump's Twitter feed, which got a little bit out of control, even by his standards on Tuesday and Wednesday. Nancy Cook's going to take us through how that derailed some major White House meetings and brought international condemnation down on the White House. And Nancy's also going to walk us through the ins and outs of tax reform, which is moving at a breakneck pace through the Senate right now. Some major announcements on that today could pass the Senate in the next few days would still need to be the subject of some legislative wrangling between the House and the Senate because those bills are different, but things are moving forward with the Republican tax plan, and we're going to get into the details. Before we do that, a quick note. Please remember to send us questions if you have them at nerdcast at politico.com. And also remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. All right, and let's welcome our panelist, senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian in the studio. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Scott. And we have White House reporter Nancy Cook. Hello. All right, we are going to start off this week talking about a uh, subject that we touched on the last time we were here, but has really mushroomed in a big way since then, sexual misconduct in Congress. And now we are up to two uh, current members of Congress who have seen uh, – Big sexual harassment complaints or sexual misconduct complaints come forward against them in the last few weeks in public. We talked the last time we were here about Democratic Senator Al Franken, who's had more accusers of improper touching come forward since that episode, including another one this morning uh, on CNN. And then there's also Democratic Rep. uh, John Conyers of Michigan, uh, who was involved in a sealed sexual harassment settlement and has faced additional public accusations from former staffers uh, since that first sealed settlement was reported by BuzzFeed. Um, So, Charlie, there's a reckoning going on right now regarding sexual harassment in media, entertainment, politics. We've seen a lot of stories from state houses around the country of really, like, disgusting activity. Uh, But it's coming to Congress very slowly and haltingly, as we've seen with the Franken News and with the Conyers News in the past week or so, who are... Not really facing – certainly no one's resigned yet. Right. It's remarkable how swiftly this has burned across the political landscape and 
you know, as you mentioned, it's led to an astonishing amount of revelations of sexual harassment and misconduct, certainly in the state capitals, uh, big states, little states, red states, blue states, all of them officials in those places. Officials are scrambling to deal with this deluge of um, disturbing revelations. I mean, you've you've actually seen lots of legislators uh, resign in some states. You've seen top legislative leaders lose their jobs over this. And, you know, there's every reason to believe it's going to cast a long shadow over uh, 2018 elections at nearly every level. But now, this, here, here's the but part. But in Congress, we really haven't seen that kind of action yet. We have seen some revelations come out, the people you mentioned. We've heard lots of rumors. There are lots of – not lots, but there are at least a few members, women members, who have talked about uh, encounters they have had or disturbing encounters that they have had without naming names yet. But what's interesting is that no one has lost their job over it yet. And in fact um, – Nobody has had to resign, and it's it's become a real mess for for uh, House Democrats in particular. I think Nancy uh, Pelosi in particular had that disaster of a of an appearance on Meet the Press last weekend. You know, a train wreck by every standard, where she uh, appeared to uh, dismiss the uh, allegations against Conyers. Who she defended him. She did pretty much everything you're not supposed to do. Yeah, let's let's roll the tape on that. Actually, that Meet the Press appearance from Sunday. We are strengthened by due process. Mm-hmm. Just because someone is accused, you, and, and was it one accusation? Is it two? I think there has to be. John Conyers is an icon in our country. Do you believe John Conyers is accused? I don't know who they are. Do you? They have not really come forward. And, and that gets so you. You don't know if you believe the accusations? What, that's for the Ethics Committee to review. So, Charlie, you were saying? Yeah, and so uh, I think that uh, Congress is still trying to figure out what to do about this. And it's, it's, real, it's especially messy on the Democratic side because that, those are the names we have right now. We have Al Franken and we have uh, the, the Conyers situation. We've got a couple of other names. There's Blake, Blake Farenthold. Some old uh, allegations are still out there. Republican He's a Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now it's the Republicans who are really struggling with it. Be, I'm sorry, the Democrats who are really struggling with it. And, and in large part because their leadership in the House have fumbled it so badly, not just Pelosi, but also Jim Clyburn and some of the remarks he's made about this. And I think ultimately what we're going to see as a result is you're going to hear a lot more chatter from younger members uh, within the House Democratic Caucus that simply will not tolerate this kind of uh, defense of of, uh, older established members. Well, I also think it just shows uh, it illustrates in an interesting way, you know, how Washington and Congress works. Yes. And on the first point, just in terms of logistics, you know, congressional offices are like these tiny siloed fiefdoms totally run by the lawmakers. They're like individuals. They're like small businesses. And each one is a small business and each is totally run at the discretion and management style of that lawmaker or chief of staff. And so you know, it just means that the personalities of each office can totally be different, but it also means that there can be a lot of abuses in offices and people won't necessarily know because it's not like there's like a CEO of all the offices. So I think that's an interesting point. You know, it's kind of set up to have some dysfunction. And then secondly, I just feel like this shows how DC can be such a tribal place. I mean, the fact that Nancy Pelosi fumbled, you know, a long time uh, you know, leader who I think would consider herself a feminist, the fact that she fumbled this so poorly, I think showed a lot of people, you know, that in D.C., a lot of times the tribe of people in D.C. can be more important than, you know, the accusers or the allegations. And there's always a desire to protect the tribe. And in that sense, you know, that's part of why Trump's outsider candidacy has been so attractive to people because of reasons like that. 
There's some interesting data on this, actually, that um, our colleague Steve Shepard has written about with the Politico Morning Consult poll and also the the Quinnipiac poll. Democratic voters around the country uh, have been much more quick to just say, throw the bums out with regard to uh, sexual harassment complaints than Democratic leaders have been. Uh, In the Quinnipiac poll, uh, asked if multiple women have accused a political candidate of sexual harassment, um, 62% of American voters said they definitely would not vote for that candidate. Uh, Republicans were divided. 43% said they would consider voting for the candidate. 41% said they would not. Uh, Democrats overwhelmingly said that they would not vote for such a candidate. Now, maybe that's colored a little bit by what we're seeing with Roy Moore right now in Alabama, that he's the most prominent of these. And so there's a little partisanship kip- kicking in there. But the the reaction from Democratic voters who uh, said in that poll they'd be much le- less likely to vote for and said in the Politico poll that they'd be much more likely to believe the accusers who came forward against a Democratic politician than Republicans would be to believe accusations against a Republican politician, just that that really stunned me, the the fact that there's this disconnect between Democratic leaders and Democratic voters on this. But I think regardless of party, this also presents a huge opportunity for some of the members of Congress who are not facing these charges to do, uh, you know, sort of make hay of this politically. You know, one thing that I've been uh, watching with great interest has been uh, Barbara Comstock, who represents uh, Virginia. And, you know, is in a district that Trump really won, but she's a bit more moderate. Uh, Trump lost by double Oh, digits. Trump lost. Oh, thank yes. you. OK. So he lost there, but she is uh, like a more moderate Republican. And she has really sort of picked up on this issue and taken the lead on it and, you know, tried to work with Democrats to delve into how these sexual harassment complaints are filed and dealt with. And I think for her and a bunch of politicians, this represents an opportunity to kind of show bipartisanship on it and also just show that you can be proactive in this and that you're not part of this tribal culture. And another – that's a great point. You know, another name uh, that has come out of, of these scandals or out of the last week and, and really burst into the spotlight is uh, freshman New York Congresswoman uh, Kathleen Rice. I mean people know that she has been a, a, a reformer and a critic of, of Nancy Pelosi. But she came out with possibly – and t- correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the strongest anti-Pelosi statement. She is the one member of that caucus that called her out directly uh, yesterday saying that Pelosi's appearance – set women back and, quite frankly, our party back for decades by failing to, to uh, more forcefully confront the allegations of harassment against Conyers. Can you imagine for somebody, for a freshman member of Congress to take on the minority leader, the, the, uh, the former speaker, uh, that way? I mean, it goes to show you the kind of anger, but also the kind of opportunity uh, that presents itself in a situation like this. And what's interesting is not only will people remember that ne- uh, next session, particularly if Democrats are in the majority, but there will be if Democrats do win a majority or get close to it, it will be on a wave of Democratic women elected from across the country, women, many of whom were almost radicalized or, or uh, pushed into running by anger over Donald Trump. And they are simply not going to tolerate the practices, uh, the congressional practices of recent decades. Yeah. Well, and we saw that even with the Virginia governor's race. I mean, you know, that really was won and lost on northern Virginia suburban women. And I feel like 
if I were a Republican or a Democrat looking at 2018 or 2020, I would be thinking, how can I court that group of suburban women? There's no question it's becoming a galvanizing issue. As you point out, Nancy, Barbara Comstock is in one of the most interesting congressional races in America. It's a uh, double-digit Clinton district held by a Republican. And there's been a lot of questions about, like, how is she going to kind of separate herself from this in order to try and win re-election again? This issue screams out as one that could potentially galvanize a lot of a lot of voters seeing her take a leadership position on it. On the other side, we saw there's a, a Democrat named Dan McCready, who's a veteran running in North Carolina 9. That's a pretty Republican district, but he he's also latching onto this. He had an op-ed in the Charlotte Observer this morning uh, calling out Pelosi and, quote, Bill Clinton-era uh, tactics for coming to Conyers' defense on Meet the Press before. We should note Pelosi walked those comments back later. Um, and But the fact that it took several hours, I think, speaks volumes to what you guys were talking about, about the relationships um, on on the Hill. And then just, which is one more thing about the, the electoral effect that we're seeing already. There is a wild web ad out there now from this uh, a woman, Dana Nessel, running for attorney general in Michigan. And uh, we can, we can, Play the clip right now, this, this web video that she just put out. If the last few weeks has taught us anything, it's that we need more women in positions of power, not less. So when you're choosing Michigan's next attorney general, ask yourself this. Who can you trust most not to show you their penis in a professional setting? Is it the candidate who doesn't have a penis? I'd say so. So clearly, this is this is an enormous political issue. I, I don't we we don't know how far this is going to go, but there are certainly going to be more accusations out there against sitting members of Congress, against people who are going to be running for Congress in 2018. It's going to change a lot of races that we're looking at and politics in general, like through the next year and maybe beyond. Well, and also just you know, in this year of special elections. Uh, you know, if people end up resigning, there could be more special elections or there could be governors that will have to appoint people to seats. Uh, you know, we're already looking at the 2018 map somewhat obsessively, but this could open up more seats uh, in both the House and the Senate. And that combined with potential personnel moves in the in the Trump White House could mean that the, the, the map of open seats could be uh, much different than we think right now. Yeah, it's already been shaping up to be a pretty volatile election, but uh, – who knows what what else is around the corner? I mean, it there's the the possibilities are are endless. Oh, and now actually, hey, we have some breaking news uh, coming through from Politico uh, right now. Nancy Pelosi has called on John Conyers to resign. Whoa! All right. Yeah, I think this is the first time news is actually broken during our show, <laughs> as opposed to as we we while we were going back to the office or <laughs> after we shut it down. So that's good. Okay, but so that that still we're talking about this. This is uh, a congressman who multiple staffers. Uh, there's been a a settlement where the the United States government actually paid money to a former staffer of John Conyers as part of a settlement. To, to to settle a sexual harassment complaint. There are multiple other staffers who have come forward on the record to detail uh, complaints against them. And it has still it still has taken several weeks for Democratic leaders to get to this point. One of the, the ripples, I, I think, of the pressure on Conyers will be increased pressure on Al Franken. Uh, and even if the circumstances turn out to be different than Conyers, you have another component here. What what 
isn't getting as much attention is the uh, racial component of the Conyers situation because there are many members of the Black Caucus who feel that it's unfair that uh, Conyers, an icon of the House, someone the, the dean of the House, someone – uh, who has been around forever and accomplished much for, for, for Democrats, would be under pressure to resign, yet Franken at the time appeared uh, to be able to hang on to his seat. And I, so I think this complicates that dynamic as well. I've been pretty surprised. I was surprised a couple weeks ago when Eliana said that she thought Franken was going to have to resign because I hadn't really had time to process that, you know, the first accuser had just broken the news about an hour before. And now looking back on it a few weeks, I'm surprised he hasn't faced more pressure to resign. And again, we've seen uh, his approval rating has nosedived in Minnesota. We've seen a lot of kind of Democratic grassroots and Democratic voter outrage about it, but he has not faced calls to resign from within Congress. I'll be curious to see what, what the threshold is, too, for who stays and who, who uh, has to go. Because in, in some, with, with some of these uh, politicians, it is amazing the way they defend themselves, you know, the half apologies uh, or the, the skirting around what they actually did. And I think in some cases you're going to find that that is going to be what – that's going to be what costs them their, their job, the fact that they didn't face up right away and be upfront and express real contrition. The one thing hanging all over this that we we haven't really mentioned yet, we mentioned his name briefly, but people are starting to wonder if Roy Moore might be bouncing back a little bit in Alabama after suffering in the polls uh, immediately. We've got that special election coming up December 12th. We don't know what will happen on Election Day, but by all accounts, you know, from what we've been able to see, it's still very competitive and potentially with Moore even still leading, uh, which is pretty remarkable given the fact that more women have continued to come out uh, accusing him of – sexual misconduct, that the women who are already out there named on the record with their stories about him are frankly horrifying. Um, and yet he he could end up, you know, it, it, he's, he's still in this race. And I, I've heard some of that chatter about this idea that he is bouncing back in some way. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say with the polls in, in this it's race. It's really hard to say. Because, I mean, Alabama is a state that uh, doesn't have great polling to begin with. The polling that I've seen that's out there is kind of sketchy, like to be honest. Uh, some of the firms are unknown. Some of, uh, some of the, the samples are, are, you know, to me, they, they don't necessarily – I don't mean to cast aspersions on these, on these firms, but they don't it's feel right. reasonable questions to ask. Yeah. I mean, they don't feel right. They seem a little shady. So we don't have – high quality polling there. It's hard to know. Uh, the dynamics there are you know, fluid. Um, but, but I do think that there is a little truth to that because the disdain for the media and the mistrust of the media runs so deep among Republicans. And you see that in every survey. And it runs especially deep among Alabama conservatives. So it's entirely possible that he has stopped dropping and he has, you know, sort of hit the level he's going to be at. And, you know, he'll be it'll be a close race in, in, in any case. All right. Well, we are definitely going to be coming back to this uh, a number of times in the days and weeks and months ahead. Uh, Something else that we're coming back to a lot lately, Trump's itchy Twitter finger. And our second data point this week is the number 36. That's the number of tweets Trump sent on Tuesday and Wednesday, and they may have been the most unusual and damaging ones yet. Uh, so, Nancy, uh, the White House team has had a, a few very good stories out in, in the past few days, uh, one from our uh, frequent Nerdcast colleague, Eliana Johnson, another from uh, Annie Carney, uh, even before Wednesday's madness, about how for all the White House's blustering about how Trump's Twitter feed doesn't matter, uh, it does. And on 
earlier this week, we saw an example of Trump's tweets with which Chief of Staff John Kelly has gone out of his way to note he does not seek to control, uh, any, any Carney wrote with Eliana, having an immediate impact on the legislative process and derailing a crucial meeting that had been weeks in the making. And they're talking about this meeting that was supposed to happen between Trump and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi about funding the government uh, passed this year. Uh, Pelosi and Schumer pulled out. Uh, because Trump tweeted that basically there was no use dealing with them and that they're horrible people. Um, so, and now we find ourselves, you know, with a potential government shutdown looming in the future. We've, we're not, we haven't even gotten yet into Trump's tweets on Wednesday with the, the Britain first stuff, the kind of anti-Muslim vile uh, clips. But <laughs> how is this affecting the White House? I think that the fiction that it's not, effect, that Trump's Twitter doesn't affect the White House is unraveling again. Well, I think a few things. First, you know, there when Kelly came in, there was this narrative that, you know, he was going to bring all this order and bring all this control um, and that he was just going to sort of do everything uh, to do that. And part of that was controlling people who go into the Oval Office and part of that was controlling, you know, Trump a bit better and part of it was controlling the policymaking process and making sure it wasn't as much of a free-for-all. But I think we're seeing the longer that Kelly is there, the White House is now definitely trying to manage expectations. And even Kelly himself, by really making it clear that, you know, he has no control over Trump's tweets and, you know, he doesn't always control what Trump says. And I just think it's an interesting moment because, you know, people in the White House, when you talk to them, they like to act like nothing Trump says almost matters. I was talking to someone earlier this week about what Trump would say at the speech that he gave yesterday in Missouri, where he was talking about tax reform, but also the economy, uh, and also what he would say when he visited the Hill to talk to Senate Republicans on Tuesday. And, you know, the person I was talking to said, oh, well, you know, there'll be a speech, but it almost doesn't even matter because Trump will say what he's going to say. And that's sort of the vibe in the White House. Like, oh, don't listen to what the president says. Like, don't don't pay attention to the tweets, which is an insane stance in a lot of ways because these are presidential statements. And it's even like more powerful than, you know, a press release or an official thing. This is like what Trump thinks. And because of social media and Twitter and the fact that he loves it and it's used he's used it to for political gains to really harness his base it also gives us this sense of what he's thinking all the time and so you know the white house constantly sort of tries to shove it off saying we have no control over that kelly has no control over that just don't pay attention but i think more and more we're seeing that these are real presidential statements and they affect world events you know they've definitely affected things uh policy wise in terms of throwing wrenches into the healthcare debate you know changing the some of the policy decisions on tax reform now we're seeing it with these anti-Muslim videos. I mean, they're like these tweets are helping to make policy. And so this idea in the White House that we should just ignore it, even though they themselves are like constantly, you know, paying attention to it, too, is a is a bit ludicrous. Also, the fact that I mean, for for 100 years, like the bully pulpit has been the thing that that everyone thinks about, about uh, presidents driving policy from Teddy Roosevelt to Franklin Roosevelt to Reagan. I mean, th- this is... The the idea that it suddenly doesn't matter and it, it is not a a powerful tool that is potentially being misused is bonkers. Well, also just the idea that you would have White House staff people being like, just you just ignore the president when he talks or tweets. Like he doesn't really mean that. It's like well, he's the president. Yes, he does mean it. it, it he says it. 
I mean, just the backlash that those tweets yesterday inspired abroad should end any discussion that his tweets don't matter. And the the shrugged shoulder answers from top aides uh, about the, about his tweeting habits shouldn't be accepted at face value anymore because you know, these aren't just throwaway lines. It's no different than an official White House statement on White House stationery, and those have consequences. I mean, just look look at what we saw yesterday. The London the mayor of London calls on the UK government to cancel any state visit by Trump. The prime minister had to issue a response. It was disavowed by the, you know, uh, the, the embassy of Netherlands. Uh, I mean, they, they, it elevated and validated extremist rich fringe groups. This was the greatest day in Britain First's history. 43 million people or however many people uh, get the, the Trump tweet and the president of the United States just introduced them and their ideas and their videos to the world. Uh, and so... The, the other problem, too, is, I mean, imagine if any other president had, you know, hours before a high stakes meeting uh, of congressional leaders that's designed to forge compromise, issued a statement ripping them. You know, that was the equivalent of his tweet. And so, you know, it, it's not just that um, it's the outrageous things. It is the daily statements. It's the stream of them. Uh, it is the effect on our country, too, and the way people think uh, government or people's perceptions of how government should work. Like what what voters are out there are going to think that the president or their leaders in Washington are seriously engaged uh, in the act of government, uh, governance or are engaged in good faith negotiations when he's tweeting out things, uh, mocking Pelosi and Schumer. It, it's just, uh, you know, the, the tone, the frequency, the substance of it. The, the, I think the most troubling part of that is that they're giving too much insight into his fragile psyche. And they're beginning to also raise questions, not just about his intentions, but also about his mental and emotional state. And that's just as bad as anything else. Well, I think it also just raises questions about, you know, Kelly and his ability to run the White House. I mean, you know, people always say, oh, well, he's done all this, you know, to control the staff and their decision-making process is much smoother. But at the end of the day, if you can control what the president says uh, over Twitter or just, you know, in press briefings uh, or in speeches, if he goes off script, then what are you really controlling? Like, you need to have some sway over the principle. And if you don't, then what's kind of what's the point? Um, it's just there have been some really key stories in the New York Times and in the Washington Post the last few days about how Trump coming back from Mar-a-Lago has been very, very emboldened. You know, he loves going to Mar-a-Lago and sitting on the deck and he catches up with friends and he's not quite as managed there and is sort of able to poll people about what they think about any number of things informally and he's really loves that moment. Um, you know, when I talk to White House staffers, they always sort of make that point. And, and since he's come back, you know, I feel like he's been much looser. And the New York Times and the Post stories made this point. But the New York Times was also talking about how he's increasingly, too, brought up things like he's still not sure if uh, Obama was born in the U.S., which is something that he admitted was inaccurate a long time ago or something that he said he had made up. Um, he also raised questions about whether or not it was his voice on the Hollywood Access tape, Access Hollywood tape, which is also something that he had admitted to. And so it just it seems like more and more there's the sense of Trump's reality. And it's not just can you control the president's statements, but it seems like Kelly and even people in the White House have no ability to help him construct sort of a more real narrative. So – the jumping back to to that meeting that Trump effectually uh, effectively canceled with congressional Democrats earlier this week. I mean, are 
the the fact that he's creating this this reality for himself that that he's living it does that make it more likely that we're going to have a government shutdown at the end of the year? I mean, potentially. It's it's so hard to say because I feel like that's still a few weeks away, and there's some different deals that congressional leaders are talking about to perhaps extend the funding until January to give them a bit more time, um, and that seems like quite far away at this point. But uh, I just think that you know part of the you know, he really liked the adulation that came when he cut the original temporary spending deal with Nancy and Chuck, as he calls them. And then he got some backlash from his base, and now he's decided to cancel it. And so I just feel like, you know, sort of governing is not his strong point so far. And looking ahead and seeing whose relationships he's going to need to really have good, uh, you know, good, strong relationship with and acting on that to sort of count up with a deal, that's not always something he's great at. So I feel like we may end up having one. All right. Well, we will be keeping an eye out for that and for whatever Trump tweets today and tomorrow and next week. We're going to be right back with our third segment. First, let's take a quick break to hear a message from Politico. Let's shift over, though, to, you know, we talk a month doesn't seem like a particularly long time to sort all this stuff out. But there's a pretty big policy that needs to move before then or that Republicans want to move before then. And that is, of course, tax reform. Um, We are watching it burst through. We've seen it get passed through the House. We're watching it move through the Senate right now. Our data point for our third segment is the number 52. And that's the number of Republican senators there are. And all of them stuck with the party on a vote to proceed with the Senate tax bill on Wednesday, pulling together to advance the legislation. There's no guarantee that they'll all stick with it on passage, which they're hoping for in the next few days. But it is moving along at the moment. And there was a key announcement just earlier this morning that Senator John McCain says he is going to back the Senate tax bill, which is uh, he was one of the kind of remaining holdouts that people were wondering about. So, Nancy, what's what's the state of play on in the Senate and in Congress more generally on tax reform right now? Um, what's in the bill and, and what might what might change by, you know, between right now and, and passage? So the bill is kind of changing like hour by hour and we still don't know exactly what it will look like. Um, you know, there are some deficit hawks like Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee who want there to be some sort of assurance that, uh, you know, the deficit won't balloon or, you know, taxes will be raised, um, you know, if the deficit gets too high. Anyway, these are some of the the points of negotiation still being worked out. The policy differences are really over the state and local tax deduction. Um, and the deficit at this point. uh, And that's what people are concerned about. But the state of play broadly is that it looks like the Senate will probably be able to pass this bill, particularly with McCain joining on. And that means it's going to go to conference. And that means that the White House is one step closer to this major legislative victory that they want that so far has been elusive for them. And that's a really big deal. The other big deal that I would point out is that this bill, that both the House version and Senate version have been totally rushed through. Lobbyists that I talk to, you know, like real baller lobbyists who understand taxes like crazy, they're still trying to figure out what is in it. Uh, you know, all the downtown folks that are, you know, pulling in all the money from all the companies, they, they're they not even quite sure. These and, are the experts who are paid to know. <laughs> yeah, and they're still trying to digest it. I mean, they're working 24-7 to digest it. People on the Hill are still trying to understand it. There's a great story in the New York Times this morning about how uh, Treasury has been, you know, said that they would produce all these analysis that showed how it would add to the deficit, what it would do to the economy. They haven't produced it yet. So basically, senators are going to vote for this without a great sense from nonpartisan career 
experts, particularly economists, as to how this would affect the economy and how this would add to the deficit. And I think that that is by design politically to rush it through to make sure that they get a win, even if they're not sure of what the long-term consequences will be. Charlie, I've been struck watching this. If you, if we had gone back in time a year and told that at this point there there would essentially have of the ten Democratic senators running for re-election in 2018 in states that Trump won, five of them by double digits, that none of them would be particularly interested in jumping on to any major legislation in 2018 or in 2017, including tax reform. That would have been surprising to me at, at that point. But there really has just been no no movement and really no effort by the White House to to try and get some modicum of bipartisanship here. I think it's just a reflection of how deeply polarizing uh, the Trump presidency has been that these folks have made the calculus that, you know, they have much more to lose than to gain from uh, working with him. Uh, and, and I think that's probably the, the correct assessment for them to make because the Democratic base is absolutely radicalized. And if they start to work with uh, President Trump, they will get a primary challenger, no doubt about it. Uh, you've already heard talk about it. The only person who, uh, you know, I, I'm a little more surprised with Joe Manchin. Uh, I would have thought that in a state that was so gaga over Donald Trump, uh, Manchin would be under more pressure on something like that. And he's but, the one who's kind of cracked the door open a yeah. tiny bit. But it almost seems like he's doing it more to seem reasonable than than anything else. To right. seem, He'd be inclined to. But again, there's the primary prospect. But also, I think, uh, you know, when you, when, you, when you look very closely at the details of the of the tax plan and then when you take a look at who's likely to gain and who's likely not to gain, I mean, I think you could probably make a pretty good argument if you're Joe Manchin again for why you uh, aren't on board for it. Well, and one of the arguments would have to be, Nancy, the, the plan is really unpopular, right? The, the, the polling and again, not – too many people know exactly what's in it, right, at this point. And certainly, like, the average voter on the street doesn't. But when uh, media companies and polling companies have polled voters on do you support the Republican tax reform plan or not, it more people than not are saying they don't. Yeah, they don't. It, it's not popular uh, with American people. And it's not popular because one of the key features of the plan is that it gives a permanent tax cut and quite a big one to corporations. And it gives a smaller tax cut to individuals, but it's temporary and the individual tax cuts will expire and people's taxes will eventually actually go up under the plan. And that's according to you know, independent congressional tax experts who study this for a living. Um, and so that is not a popular idea among American voters, the corporate tax cut, the necessity of it. It's not something that people necessarily get behind. And just back to the Democrats, you know, I think the White House has done a good job superficially of reaching out to them. You know, they had Heidkamp and Manchin and Donnelly to dinner at the White House. You know, they've given those folks a lot of attention from top White House officials and the Treasury Secretary. But the fact of the matter is those people really have not been given a voice on the policy substance of it. And the Senate bill has – I wrote a story about this last night. The Senate bill has almost nothing that would appeal to them. And when they stuck the decision – when they decided to put the repeal of the individual mandate from Obamacare in them, that was really like a sign to a lot of folks in the Senate that forget it. We're not going to get Democrats. You know, We're just going to get this through because that's not really something that Democrats necessarily want. And so there's really nothing in the bill policy-wise that they could take home and say – this is a good bill. This has democratic principles in it. We can make this bipartisan. And that, that's that been really their 
fatal flaw in trying to attract Democrats from my point of view. Nancy, do you expect all the deficit hawks will fold in the end? They are folding. I mean, already they're folding. It's so interesting just to see. I think that that's one of the, um, you know, two un, un or slightly undercovered aspects of this is that, you know, Republicans had such religion on the deficit when Obama was in office and it was such a big deal and they wanted to cut entitlements and, and it was such a key thing to get under control. Um, and now they have the opportunity to pass this tax bill and even the people who really care about the deficit and people who aren't up for re-election again like Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, you know, they're going to fold on this. They already have. And it's just so interesting to me that that they have made this ideological shift on it. The other really under uncovered thing, I think, from this tax bill, and I think they're going to pass it without us having any sense of what this would mean, is that this bill dramatically changes the corporate tax system, not just like slashing the corporate rate, but it moves to an entirely different type of taxation system called the territorial system. It totally changes all of these really complicated, arcane international tax laws for businesses that very few people in Washington understand. And I feel like people have been paying so much attention to sort of the individual rates and the headline corporate rate that we don't have a sense of what this will mean for companies and how this will change the economy. And that's just like another aspect that we have that we're kind of in the dark on as they're rushing through this bill. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, who who is in charge of crafting that? Essentially, what, what's the what's the goal behind the idea of changing all that? Well, there have been, you know, Republican staffers and tax writers on the Hill who have been thinking about changing these international rules for a long time. But there's very few people in Washington that kind of understand how what it will all mean and how it will all add up and without kind of having all of these scores in place and really good analysis before uh, they vote on it, I feel like this is just like a huge wild card in terms of, you know, the Trump White House is saying, oh, you know, companies are going to bring back all this money. They might, but I don't know if we necessarily have a great sense of that. Wow, that's really interesting. So before we wrap up here, the you know, we we have a sense, you know, even though it's still changing, we have a sense of what's in the what what are what are kind of the big um Political issues that could be that could be up for grabs that could create some conflict that the Republicans might need to move through in order to reconcile what's in that House bill that already passed and what's in that Senate bill that it looks like is going to pass. There's been a lot of talk about state and local taxes and the deduction relating to those. There's been stuff about all sorts of different deductions that are or are not getting uh, getting getting saved or or changed. Yeah, so uh, there's a I'll just like go through the laundry list. Um, you know, when the corporate rate tax cut starts will end up being a big thing. The Senate one would delay the start of it in an effort to save some money. The House one would start right away. That will be a key one to watch because that's also something that President Trump really cares about. Where the individual tax brackets end up will be key. The House version has fewer than the Senate version. How does that shake out? That will mean a lot for individual taxpayers. And then where they end up on the mortgage interest deduction and the state and local tax deduction will also be key, particularly for people that live in high-cost states like California, New Jersey, New York. I mean, those are huge issues. And the House bill uh, takes uh, the state and local tax deduction a bit more into account than the Senate bill. So that will be like a key point of negotiation to watch. 
And those three states that you just mentioned have a disproportionate number of battleground Republican-held House seats uh, up in 2018, which is going to be really interesting to to watch. And some some of those members actually who who voted to adv- uh, to pass the House bill have actually said that they voted to continue the process, but they still want to see changes on that uh, going forward. So that'll be really interesting to see how or whether. That resolves. Yeah. And just as a symbolic thing, you know, the Senate bill repeals uh, Obamacare's individual mandate, but the House doesn't have it that as part of it. And so it'll be interesting to see at conference, you know, do they end up adopting that? Um, but I think there'll be like, a, a, you know, I, I think it seems like the difference is they can work them out at this point because they've gotten this far. Mm, interesting. All right. Well, I guess we have a few weeks to to watch to see if it happens. This is really it's all moving very quickly. Um, it's it's like remarkable to me, even though I've covered taxes for a while, and I know that the tax writers on the Hill have been thinking through these things for a long time. It is remarkable to me still the speed at which this is moving, and the fundamental changes that this will make to the tax code. When I think Americans really are not clued into what it ultimately will mean. All right. Well. Something to watch. <laughs> uh, thank you both for being here this week. And uh, Nancy, thank you so much for talking us through all the all that complicated stuff just now. I love the geeky stuff anytime. <laughs> and Charlie, thank you for being here as always. Thanks. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. Remember, you can email us questions if you have them at nerdcast at politico.com. Also, remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. So once again, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our assistant producer, Michaela Rodriguez, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, our researcher, Zach Montalaro, a uh, Politico playbook producer. And again, thank you to you, our listeners. We will be back with you next week. Thank you.